Welcome to the PTA Elevation Podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by the PTA Elevation Board Prep Program. If you feel lost and overwhelmed with your studying and need some extra guidance to help prepare for the exam, fill out the link in the description below to book a free call to learn more about the program. The program offers all the tools you'll need from pre-recorded videos to group and individualized coaching to help ease your anxiety when it comes to the exam. Thank you for your continued support. Now on to the show. What's up, future PTAs? I have a quick announcement to make before we get started with today's episode. On Sunday, October 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be hosting a free masterclass webinar to help give students a blueprint they'll need to take all of the stress and anxiety out of studying for the boards and to provide students with the structural they'll need to absolutely crush the NPTE. Sign up for free down on the link in the show notes below. Now on to the show. What's up, guys? Today we're going over Guillain Bray, and I will tell you this will probably show up on the exam because that's one of those where it's like, is it proximal and distal? Is it bilateral? Is it unilateral? What's going on? Neuro thing? Ah, lots of things happening. Don't worry, guys. I'm about to break it down and make it super simple. So let's get into it. So anatomy, this is super important to understand because this is mostly affecting the motor fibers, which remember motor fibers go to our skeletal muscles. And what's one skeletal muscle we don't want to crap out? the diaphragm, because then that means we're going to have some respiratory paralysis happening. So unfortunately, I think the statistics are like 20 to 25% of individuals diagnosed with Guillain-Barre end up needing a ventilator at some point in their recovery due to respiratory paralysis. So that's why this is like a big red flag being like, oh crap, what's going on? So this disorder specifically is going to attack the myelin sheaths and the Schwann cells that surround them. So that's in the peripheral like, nervous system and stuff like that. And this is gonna cause lots of problems. This is a lower motor neuron disorder. I forgot to mention that in um, the notes here, but I will put that in the PowerPoint when I upload it. And I want you guys to understand that this is going to make all of your skeletal muscles get really weak, really hypo-reflexive, really not doing much and that's going to cause paralysis and we don't want the diaphragm to be paralyzed. So here's the big thing of what happens with Guillain-Barre. And I'm going to say this like three times. The initial presentation will progress bilaterally from distal to proximal. So it's like you're going to start seeing weakness in the hands and the feet before you start seeing weakness in the shoulder or the hip kind of thing. So you're going to see a lot of people, they'll start tripping. They'll feel like their grip strength is not doing too well. And then they'll notice that it starts creeping up and they get weaker in their knees and their hips and everything like that. And then eventually they become paralyzed. So remember bilaterally, so both sides are happening at the exact same time. Remember with ALS, that would be unilaterally and the same progression distal to proximal kind of thing, which means when we get it back, we're getting it back bilaterally proximal to distally. So you'll get your hip flexors back before you get your dorsiflexors back. So Etiology, how does this happen? Well, the like cut case, like true meaning of it is uh, we don't know, Um, but we're thinking most likely it's due to some sort of autoimmune response. So a lot of these um, disorders such as like MS or even um, type one diabetes end up being like usually some sort of autoimmune response to one of the following kind of things. So most likely it's going to be, and the boards like to use this example a lot, is if it's Epstein-Barr virus. So remember, that's the one that's similar to like mono, but you get it like for long, long, long periods of time. So that's the Epstein-Barr virus. So some sort of viral infle- 
infection. Could also be the flu. Another one is cytomegalovirus. That's another one that ends up causing any sort of respiratory virus. It could be like literally just anything you get off the street. Um, I'm sure coronavirus could be on here too because we've seen Guillain-Barre happening with people with long COVID. Um, and then also another thing is immunization. So this is one of the possible side effects because remember it's triggering an immune response when you're immunized that it could end up being an autoimmune response. So that's why when you sign the sheet, when you're gonna get your flu shot or any sort of vaccination, the uh, slight, very super, super, super rare possibility that you could end up with Guillain-Barre is on there and it gives, and you have to consent that you understand that this is a possible side effect. That's what's going on with this just because it triggers an immune response. So anything triggering an immune response could cause Guillain-Barre. So we're seeing all those different viral infections end up being common, bacterial infections as well. And then sometimes in rare occurrences, we do see this after surgery, just due to the fact your body's having a huge immune re response because you've had a cut in your body to repair that, but it ends up being overloading and being an immune response. And that's how you get Guillain-Barre. So for the boards, just understand it's probably some sort of infection or immunization that's going to cause this with Epstein-Barr being one of the big, big boys when it comes to, uh, Guillain-Barre. So random autoimmune response that accidentally happens and attacks the myelin sheaths in your motor fibers. So what does it look like? As I said before, and this is the big thing, if you get anything from Guillain-Barre, it is going to progress bilaterally distal to proximal. So the feeties are having trouble before the hip flexors are. So that means that function returns the opposite way from proximal to distal. So that means when we're seeing the patient um, and they've just gotten off the vent and everything, they might have like a sense of like one or maybe a two in like their hip flexors, maybe a one in their knee extensors or quads, but they have a zero in their uh, ankle dorsiflexors. That's because the myelin sheaths are regenerating, working, conducting nerve velocity, starting with the proximal muscles down to the distal. So the distal really far away, they're like, let's get the ones that are up close first. So that's how it will, that's how it will, the function will return. But remember when we initially see it, we see the person starting to trip, person's having trouble with grip strength, they're not moving as well as they used to, they're starting to become paralyzed. That will start from distal to proximal. So this can occur at any age, but they've noticed a trend with like younger adults. So like people like 18 to like 25 kind of thing. And then um, individuals that are like 50 to 80, that ends up being the random numbers where it's highest prevalence. I'm sure as you get over 50, your immune system starts getting out of whack. That might be the reason why. And then young adults are more susceptible to getting viral infections just in general. Um, here's the big thing. Incidence is much greater in males than females. And then it's also much greater in white or Caucasian individuals. The board's gonna use Caucasian to describe white people and African-American to describe black people. So white people are more likely to get this than black people. And that is why our white dudes are getting the short end of the stick with this one. So sorry guys, you got a better chance of getting Guillain-Barre than your female counterparts. So um, white people more common than black people and uh, males more likely than females. So a white dude's most likely to get Guillain-Barre. So reflexes become hypo-reflexive or absent. And that's because this is a lower motor neuron disorder. So remember everything's going down with lower motor neurons. So our reflexes are going down. Our tone is going down. That's why you end up getting paralyzed and having that atrophy and stuff like that happen. Um, difficulty speaking and swallowing. This is because those are also skeletal muscles. Remember everything that we use to talk, everything we use to swallow is all skeletal muscles. Skeletal muscles are attacked by Guillain-Barre. That's why we see this happening. And then because our big 
dog when it comes to breathing is our diaphragm and that's skeletal muscle. Um, we can end up with respiratory paralysis and that's why these individuals will need a ventilator to breathe um, because their diaphragm is not working because it was attacked because it was a skeletal muscle. And then it's going to be like a relatively quick onset. Like it could literally happen in a couple of days, um, but you can see just like pretty rapid decline over four weeks which can result in complete paralysis. So you're going to see these, this person starts complaining about stuff. I mean, it could be somebody that let's say they canceled two visits because they're like, I'm not feeling good. And then they come into your clinic and they're like, man, I've been tripping a lot. And you're noticing all this stuff. You're like, oh no, could be Guillain-Barre. Go to your doctor, get this checked out. Go, go get like, go get this examined and stuff like that. This is not normal. Um, usually we're just sending those people to the ER to get tri triage to make sure it's okay. And like, this can be um, and I have this down below, this can be diagnosed by using a spinal tap and it's going to indicate really, really high levels of proteins, but no lymphocytes. So that's how they'll be able to tell, okay, yeah, you got Guillain-Barre because remember it's affecting the, um, nervous system. So doing spinal taps, that's your spinal fluid. That's going to kind of indicate like what the heck's going on. So that's why we're seeing a lot of concern with that. So how are we treating this? So recovery can take a really long time while it's like a pretty rapid decline over four weeks, the recovery can take months to years. So this is slow by the time we would see this person outpatient. They're going to be trying to get back to just like their regular activities and stuff like that. This person's probably going to be in acute care or like subacute rehab for a little bit, possibly even in a sniff just to kind of get their strength back and everything and progress towards getting the outpatient and getting home. Um, corticosteroids are contraindicated for this patient due to the autoimmune component. They just don't want to mess with it anymore. They don't want to do anything because remember corticosteroids will um, decrease your uh, immune stuff. Just generally for most things, giving this person a corticosteroid is contraindicated. So we're, we're not the pharmacist. We're not the doctor doing this, but just kind of keep an eye on that because the boards might ask you a random question about that. But I'd say most of the time, just being aware that this patient can have other problems that are nerve related, especially with nerve conduction through the heart. So like arrhythmias, they might have like PVCs all of a sudden form, form. they might have, um, like atrial fibrillation or something like that. A lot of people are ending up with this left bundle branch blockage, which is affecting their ventri ventricles ability to contract and stuff like that. Those are things that we would start seeing with heart arrhythmias. Those would be diagnosed with an EKG and then they might need a pacemaker or something. So remember if they have a pacemaker, that's another contraindication for ESIM, all that stuff, being aware of that. PT intervention. So what are we doing specifically for this patient? It depends on what stage they're in. If they're on a vent and they're paralyzed and they can't do anything, we want to do PROM with this patient. And remember, we're trying to prevent contractures with this patient. So proper positioning for that. But also we want to do proper positioning, continually turning the patient every two hours at least. Um, and to make sure like we're avoiding any sort of pressure ulcer forming. Because remember with the boards, since it's such a safety test, anybody who's immobilized is at a higher risk of getting pressure ulcers. So spinal cord patients, people who are paralyzed for some reason, like with Guillain-Barre, something like that, people who um, are super weak, can't move themselves, all of that stuff, high risk for pressure ulcers. So they might throw in Guillain-Barre acute on event. What is an appropriate intervention? Move them, just, just keep moving them around positioning. PROM, something like that, because if they're, if they're not conscious, they can't participate in active range of motion. So passive range of motion for this patient, just to keep stretching them and to move around to avoid pressure ulcers. Once they are able to come out of their vent, if they were on a vent for some reason, or they're able to start moving again, some light exercise can start with this patient, just being able to kind of get them back into moving. And I'm talking like maybe like a heel slide, 
maybe like we're just working on bed mobility, stuff like that, just eventually getting their muscles moving again. And remember when we're starting to treat this patient, their hip flexors and their shoulder is going to come back before their feet and their hands. So remember with this patient, they might be able to lift their leg up, but they can't extend their knee kind of thing. So they might be able to march it up to kind of bring it over, but they're not able to extend their knee yet. That'll, they'll, they'll get there eventually just kind of being aware. What can this patient do right now? What do they have control over and how can we best treat them in this moment? And that's just based on what stage they're at, what deficits they're presenting with. So just read the, when they ask the question about this, read the question, see what the patient can do because they'll describe it and then act accordingly. The biggest thing with this patient, regardless of what we're doing is energy conservation techniques, because this patient is going to be very, very weak. Generally with any patient that's being reconditioned, energy conservation techniques are at the top of what we need to do with this patient, because they're going to be super weak and they're not going to be, they're not going to be doing too well. So we want to make sure that this patient is getting the appropriate care for them and also working on not overexerting this patient and then making them sore for like three days and then they can't do anything. Once they're able to get out of bed, working on transfers and stuff like that, that functional mobility, standing up, sitting down, bed mobility, walking to and from like the counter or whatnot, going to the bathroom, something like that. We're gonna work with assisted device training. So that patient's probably going to need a wheelchair for a little bit and then possibly onto a walker, then a cane, maybe lost in crutches, whatever would be the most appropriate for this patient to maintain the highest level of mobility that they can and whatever they have control over because it might not be an appropriate device because they can't hold it in their hand. They might need like a platform walker before they need like one that they can hold on to. It really just depends on what this patient needs. The main thing we're working on is gait training because they're going to be super weak. We're going to see a lot of gait deviations like genu recurvatum because their quads are so weak. We're going to see lots of compensatory techniques with walking and just endurance in general. So just getting them moving getting them working again, and then working on gait training to help normalize their gait because their gait's going to be really wonky. But understanding that they have that proximal hip control before they end up getting their um, uh, dorsal flexors back. So, I mean, and they may never get it back. I have a guy I'm treating, he had Guillain-Barre back in the 70s. He had, needs AFOs, but everything else is good. He just needs AFOs. That's really what it comes down to. Um, for this patient specifically, because they might have been on a vent or at the very least their uh, muscles of inspiration or respiration are not doing too well. Um, you're going to be hanging out with respiratory therapists a lot for this one, because this patient has a lot of breathing problems. So our respiratory therapists are our besties with this patient, and we're going to help get this patient back to where they need to. They're going to use incentive spirometry, then other breathing techniques, such as diaphragmatic breathing, pursed lip breathing, just all of this stuff to help the patient facilitate breathing. So remember, movement with this patient will return proximally to distally bilaterally because it got messed up the other way. So I like to think we're doing an out and back with the patient. Like they're they're on a trail. They started at the trailhead. They went out and they went back. And that's how the progression starts. So from distal to proximal, we lose it. And then from proximal to distal, we get it back. So Keywords with this patient is anybody who's had a history of a viral infection, immunization, something like that. We got to keep an eye out for this. So this can be, we're kind of taking note of what's going on with our patients and whatnot. And just kind of, this would be more of like, is it this, is it like ALS or is it Guillain-Barre? They had, a, and it would ask the question, like the patient had a history of the flu shot two weeks ago and is now demonstrating weakness from distal to proximal in their lower extremities what condition could this patient be presenting with now? And then that would be Guillain-Barre, they go to the ER kind of thing. So progressive weakness bilaterally to uh, bilaterally from distal to proximal is how it will initially present as the disease is beginning to progress. 
after we're starting to work on returning this patient back to normal function, they're going to have a return of movement slash motion bilaterally proximal to distal. And I know I'm saying this a lot. That's because the board's literally, this is the big key words that the board cares about with this one. Um, and so we're going to see a possibility of intubation with this patient, or they might be on a ventilator. I realize it's called possible wrong. Um, and so we've got to be careful with that. Our respiratory therapists are helping us with that breathing techniques, understanding that this patient is going to be very deconditioned. They're going to need a lot of help. They're going to be in that subacute or acute care rehabilitation for a while due to the fact that they were on a ventilator. And that's because it's attacking the skeletal muscles, the diaphragm, the skeletal muscle. That's a problem with that. Caucasian individuals have a higher incidence than African-American individuals of, of getting, uh, getting Guillain-Barre and then um, more prevalent in males than females when it comes to keywords. So the boards might say like, you have a male in your clinic who had a flu shot two weeks ago that's now demonstrating uh, difficulty ambulating due to constant tripping bilaterally on both like legs. What's going on? Yambre. All right, guys. So sample question. A physical therapist assistant is treating a patient diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. The patient has recently come off their ventilator and is awake and oriented. Based on their clinical history, which muscle would we expect to have the highest MMT score when assessing the patient's strength? One, extensor hallucis longus. Two, psoas major. Three, vastus lateralis. Or four, gastrocnemia. So I'll give you guys a second to think about this. All right, guys, so our answer is the psoas major muscle, and this is because I'm saying which muscle is going to be the strongest, which means which muscle has the most innervation, working the best, least weak kind of thing while this patient's beginning their recovery. So they got off their vent, they're awake and oriented, everything. We're able to manual muscle test them because they're, they're awake and everything. They're good to go. They understand what's going on. What would we see as the muscle that has the highest MMT score? Well, that's the muscle that's going to be most proximal. So our extensor hallucis longus, that's the muscle that extends the big toe. That's pretty distal and far away. So let's look at the next one. So is major, way, way, way closer. That's super proximal. That's one of our hip flexors. That one's probably okay, but let's look at the other answers before we select that one. Vastus lateralis, it's one of your quad muscles that's going to begin below where the hip flexors are, and it's going to insert into the tibial tuberosity of one of our quads, one of our knee extensors. Well, the psoas major is still more proximal to that one, so we can get rid of that one. And then our gastrocnemius, our like primary plantar flexor, and also bends the knee a little bit. That's definitely lower than those other two, so that's why we're going to pick psoas major that we would expect to have the highest MMT score due to its proximal nature when it comes to Guillain-Barre getting function back proximal to distal. They could have a zero for all of these and then a one for psoas major. Like that's that's how debilitated this patient could be. It could be like literally, oh, I feel it a little bit. Um, and so understanding that, understanding what um, MMT scores are, manual muscle testing, probably should have wrote that out, but I hope that this was helpful in explaining everything that has to do with Guillain-Barre. And I will see you guys in the next one. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.